This episode is supported by FusionAuth. FusionAuth provides simple and secure authentication and authorization for all your users. Allow your players to sign up, log in, and link their gaming accounts to FusionAuth with support for Twitch, PSN, Xbox, Epic, Steam, and more. FusionAuth can also support millions of users and handles thousands of logins per second. They offer comprehensive documentation, guides, and a forum to speed up your development process and give you the tools you need to integrate fast and secure authentication. Start trying it out today, free of charge, at fusionauth.io game. Hey everyone, I'm Trent Custers, co-founder and studio director at League of Geeks, and this is the Game Maker's Notebook. Today we've got a bit of a different episode for you. Usually I'm on here talking to folks about their hit new video game and how they got into games or something. But today we're talking about a very different set of challenges. Today we're talking to Alex Nichaportacek, the CEO and founder of Tiny Build, a global independent developer and publisher who up until about February this year had about 200 of their workforce based in Ukraine and Russia. We're talking today about how Alex and his team mobilized and evacuated all of those team members out of both Ukraine and Russia. It's an absolutely fascinating conversation where we discuss logistical challenges, financial challenges, emotional challenges, cultural challenges, and even the challenges of somehow supporting a multiplayer games as a service title whilst in a war zone. It's an absolutely insightful look into the challenges that developers just like you and I are facing right now in the Russian invasion that's still ongoing. So I hope you find the chat as insightful as I did. Alex is wonderfully vulnerable throughout this, and it's absolutely remarkable what his team has achieved, not to mention other teams in the region. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Thank you for joining us here today, Alex. Yeah, thank you so much. It's uh, been exciting to coordinate so many time zones. Yeah, I know. I think you're with our producers here on the call. I think we were saying it's definitely the collect them all of time zones for sure on this one. Uh, I think, you know, this is a bit of a different episode, as I just mentioned in my intro to the app, but I think a really great way to begin this is for those folks who somehow in the games industry worldwide have not seen an orange hat somehow still to this day, it might be good to actually just let folks know who Tiny Build is and who you are. Let's dive into that for a second. Uh, Yeah, sure. So if you see like uh, infuriatingly orange hats at like GDC or Gamescom (laughs) or PAX, uh, it's probably us. Uh, We're Tiny Build. Uh, We're, um, well, the, the short version is we're about 11 years old, depending on how you count right now. Started out as just two guys making games in our bedrooms, indie games as they were called back then. Um, and we kind of like uh, had this journey of spending a couple of years on developing our very first game, right? And then being lucky enough to have it take off and justify going full time. So then uh, for almost a decade, we spent um, 
uh, investing into game development companies all over the world and helping essentially co-develop and publish games, right? So we were like more a traditional publisher for a while. And now um, we went public uh, last year on the London Stock Exchange and kind of like supercharged our growth. Now 400 people, 11 studios um, focused on mostly um, like mid-seer console and um, PC games. Uh, mm. And uh, recently, heavily investing into things like cross media, working on animes, a- animated series, and um, the reason we're talking about this is because um, you can probably tell by my accent. We've um, initially we started out uh, helping developers, a lot of developers from Eastern Europe, from countries like Ukraine, Belarus, and mm-hmm. uh, Russia. So that's kind of like the context of how we got here from Orange Hats <laughs> to, uh, to talking about Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start, let's just dive straight into that now. So uh, you gave a talk at DICE Europe this year uh, in August and hosted in Barcelona by the AIAS. And you spoke about your mass mobilization of your studios and staff in across both Ukraine and Russia. And so we're going to be diving into a bit of that today, but I thought it might just be a good idea to actually start off with some of the context of what's going on in Russia this week as this happened. So this, today is the, the 28th of November in 2022. So we're coming towards the end of the year, starting to get cold in that side of the world as well, you know, mm-hmm. which obviously creates issues when there's a full-scale invasion going on. But, you know, just, just this week alone, you know, Russia's kept up its onslaught on Ukrainian cities. On Saturday, there were, you know, there was an attack on Dnipro uh, and then recently liberated Kherson as well as saw residents flee shelling on Sunday. Um, there's also been power outages and inconsistencies, obviously, all across Ukraine during this time, but Ukrainian authorities are restoring power gradually, but still without heat or electricity for millions of people across Ukraine, which obviously, as things get colder in that part of the world, poses a lot more complications. And there are now fears because of this, you know, Russia's targeting of the electricity grid, that it's going to threaten the safety of Ukraine's nuclear power plants as well, which was has been an ongoing conversation throughout this. And interestingly, on that note, Russian troops may actually be preparing to leave Zaporizhia, the nuclear power plant there, which they seized in March just soon after their invasion. And some folks may know here as well, most folks may know that Russia and Ukraine actually was the site of the world's worst nuclear accident, unfortunately, you know, Chernobyl back in 1986. So it's a very topical thing um, and obviously at the forefront of both countries' minds there. Uh, Russian forces have suffered heavy casualties during fighting in Ukraine's south-central Donetsk province as well this week. Um, And the UK Ministry of Defence also uh, confirmed that they're sending more missiles to Kiev as well. likely in response due to Russia's mobilization around that nuclear power grid, perhaps. And then, of course, Zelensky. Interestingly, um, I shouldn't say of course, because it's it's amazing to hear that things like this are still happening, but President Zelensky just hosted a summit in Kiev with allied nations on Saturday um, to launch grain from Ukraine, which is an interesting initiative in the midst of all this to export over $150 million worth of grain to countries most vulnerable to famine and drought. Obviously, Ukraine has a lot to do with energy in the region and around the world, and then also agricultural nation as well. So its economic impacts are being felt by even folks here in Australia where I'm recording this from. So there's a lot still happening and a lot of certain uncertainty in the region. But Alex, for you, this started a whole, a long time ago, right? Not just this week. So when did, when did you first get the feeling that 
mobilization. Actually, let's first question is how many people did you have in Russia and Ukraine? Um, in Russia, we had just over 100. Wow. Wow. Ukraine, um, depending on how you count, because we we don't want to leave our like subcontractors, right? Uh, our yeah, that was going to be my next behind. question. So like Ukraine was 80-ish, um, something mm. like that. And you kind um, of touched on it then, but are these are these partnered companies or are they first-party studios of yours? It's all of the above. It's mostly first-party studios uh, with some contractors attached. Interesting. Okay. And so when was the first instance of where you and perhaps some of your leadership team started talking seriously about mobilizational plans? I remember I was at, you know, it's interesting, you know, you go to DICE and you're talking to people, executives mm-hmm. from across the industry, and especially at DICE, there's a lot of folks who have, uh, you know, who might head up in uh, organizations like Virtuous or others that are providing services to game developers. And a lot of them are in regions like this or other parts of the world. And I remember it was the first place I really heard about where it caught on for me how serious uh, COVID was going to be was talking to developers and publishers and service providers who had developers in the region. And the same thing happened this year at DICE in February. And actually, I remember being at dinner and that's when word in, in DICE in Vegas earlier yep. this year in February, and that's when word of the invasion actually came through. We we're all at DICE. I'm not sure. I can't remember if you were there, Alex. Uh, well, um, I was there, but uh, I had to just step away and uh, yeah, you know, deal with things that were happening. I okay, mean, for so us, it was, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, let's go back to, yeah, that, as I, as I asked, the, the, first, the first instance of you thinking about these things. So it was right around a year ago, actually, because mm. um, uh, in, like, at the end of uh, summer last year, that's when uh, the military buildup started happening uh, on the border yeah, of the border. Uh, Ukraine. Yeah, and um, if you think about, um, you know, if you're not going to be prepared to do something, you will not be committing so much resource, right? Because it's very expensive mm-hmm. to move military t- tech like that uh, to house all of these people. And it, at one point, we started to realize that this is not just going to be for exercising. Because if you think about from like an RTS standpoint where you manage resources, like if this was StarCraft, if this was a PvP match, you would be probably preparing for something, right? Yeah, yeah, and the question game. was... Yeah, the question was when, uh, because um, fighting and uh, doing an invasion in like the end of the year is very risky in that region because uh, like um, this year is getting colder sooner, so the ground will freeze up sooner. But last year it was a little bit warmer, so um, you don't want to get stuck in the mud, right? That's just like hmm. a well-known fact about that whole yeah. region because um, the ground is like... Um, is uh, mud essentially it turns to mud for quite a while uh, for a large part of the year and i think the panic really uh, started to set in in my mind in the middle of january uh, when um, uh, i think it was uh, biden that said something that was quoted like um, that a minor incursion will be you know it's like, fine essentially don't don't bite off like a large chunk right yeah and to me, what that did is it, it set off alarm bells because um, if I was in Russia and in the military and breathing that, I would be like, okay, guys, let's go, right? They're afraid. Time, yeah. Showing yeah. fear uh, in that situation or giving the perception of fear was what made me think, okay, now everyone get on the call. Uh, it was like a Friday night, 1 a.m. local time. Everyone's already at the bar and um, especially all of our Ukrainian leadership. So I got everyone together and 
we just started talking like through deep into the night of what might happen because um mm. what i also realized that um we would not be able to have um an objective non-emotional conversation if shit was already hitting the fan and i'm not sure if i can right. swear on this podcast but we can you can swear it. absolutely go for right. it so if shit is hitting the fan that's when people are irrational and that's when you really want to have a solid plan that you thought about when you were non-emotional right yes so during the night uh we just started to we opened up the map did some screen sharing and we're like okay well from a game theory perspective uh yeah. you know if, again if this was civ if this was starcraft what would the uh, other side attempt to do well yeah. we realized that um Okay, uh everyone was saying that the attack from the north from Belarus on Kiev is unlikely, but let's just hypothesize. So we realized that um it was going to be super important to um essentially be prepared um to go away from Kiev to Lviv via the mm -hmm. south, right? So that you would need yeah. to go south and then to the west. Uh the reason being that there was a strategic point which is the uh Zhitomir airport. It's not the main airport of Kiev, uh but it's on the left side of the bank. So okay. if you were going up from the north, that is where you would probably need to make a base of operations um to fly in military equipment because the range on the tanks uh if you go from the uh border with Belarus is not enough to get into Kiev. So they yeah. would need to make like a you know a base of operations somewhere. So that means that going to that left bank would be traffic jams, extremely dangerous, and we would need to have flexibility. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the first considerations. Then we realized that um, okay, well, fuel is going to be scarce, uh, water, um, heat, mm -hmm. heated clothing, uh, connection and is Alex, going to be just a moment. Yeah. Who are the, who are these people that you're like? Who on your team are you talking to about this? Like, who would you gathered? Yes, yeah, so we've had um, uh, we have a studio in Lviv uh, called Holograph. They had made a Secret Neighbor, which yeah. is a multiplayer spin-off of one of our um, main franchises. Mm -hmm. um, so we had uh, Max and Sergey, which were the co-leads of that studio. Mm -hmm. Then we had a subcontractor uh, that was doing um, a whole bunch of animation work for many of our projects. They yep. were in Kiev. Um, mm -hmm. Then we had uh, the team lead of a game called Dead Side, um, which was also in Kiev, and uh, we've had a, a few people who were kind of like uh, team leads but spread out uh, around Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and we essentially divided everyone into groups where we would have a lead responsible, well, quote responsible for those people, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so that uh, when we need to check in uh, to make sure that you know someone is on their way or um, needs assistance, then we would um, have these seamless that would phone them by whatever means necessary, um, yeah. and then reply back, uh, report back with the status. Yeah, because at this point you're already thinking about everyone, right? Because you're you're talking through these hypotheticals, and <clears throat> and. And I guess through the context at this point, had you decided that if this happens, it has to be everyone, it's an all or nothing thing, or was there conversation about who's staying, who wouldn't, was it a bit of waiting to see the scale of the invasion? Was that part of something that you're working through in your hypotheticals? Um, so in the conversations, it was very difficult to tell everyone that, hey, this is going to be like massive relocation because everyone has like their apartments, their families and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas with um, people on the Western side in Lviv, um, we 
prepared for um, everyone. So that meant uh, getting apartments ready, getting uh, you know like mattresses, like blankets, all of all of the humanitarian aid you can have. So um, it we had to prepare for the worst, and then we knew that um, it was going to be critical to get uh, women and children out of the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the country would lock itself, right? Um, if you're um, uh, a young man uh, without uh, three kids or over, you can't. You would not be able to leave the country. Yeah. Um, so it was multi-step. Uh, our people in Europe were already prepared to essentially go to the Polish border and pick everyone up, um, right. or uh, assist um, in whichever way they could. Um, so it was getting the the uh, women and children out um, and uh, getting everyone else into Lviv and setting everyone up in a um, comfortable way. Yes, yes, of course. And so these hypotheticals that you were going through in regards to like how it may go down, how far did you go with those? Like, I mean, you spoke us through, you know, the, the airport just, you know, north of Kiev on the left side of the bank there, but you, how many... How many of these sort of hypothetical invasions did you did you run through, and did you actually get get close? Was there a plan that you had prepared, a contingency plan that was close to what actually happened? Well, we we had kind of like three versions, three basic versions. One was that um, there was going to be some fighting in the Donbass region, which was annexed in, uh, well, occupied in 2014. Uh, yep. We had like a mid plan where um, it would just go from east to, to west uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, from the south, from Crimea. And then we had, you know, the... Um, the code black, as we called it, is like, uh, okay, uh, Kiev is under attack. This is going to be a full-on invasion. Um, and when I we were at DICE at that point, right? Uh, yes. I was also sitting at dinner, and then I got the code black message, and I just remember, like, you know, going into, like, fading into this haze of uh, stress, adrenaline, and just locking myself in the hotel room, opening up a bowl of something very strong, and... <laughs> just for three days, just uh, sleeping in intervals of a couple of hours and just checking in with people to make sure that things were going right. And I mean, uh, the the biggest challenge, um, oddly enough, was um, financial um, in the way that um, people don't don't really think about like, okay, well, what if your cards stop working, right? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. what if you don't have your credit card tomorrow? What if your bank card is useless? What if you can't get cash from the ATM? Yeah. So and you talk, you're talking for your team, I guess, their own personal cards yeah. and things, right? Yeah. yeah. Helping them yeah. financially. Yeah. Yeah. So we had mm. to um, kind of innovate on, on what would payments look like. And that is what I believe really saved everyone when it did hit the fan. Um, because we were able to use a lot of local payment providers um, with like, you know, peer to peer, kind of like a Ukrainian version of PayPal, essentially. Um, yeah. That saved us uh, a lot. And then, uh, just having everyone coordinated in groups like a battalion, um, mm. when information that is relevant to um, like people in this region um, gets propagated in an accurate way, that was really helpful. So, for hmm. example, getting fuel, because uh, the trip from Kiev to Lviv is about 600 kilometers, and yep. uh, that, that's... 350, 400 miles. Uh, for and for our listeners here, uh, Lviv is a w- uh, west of Kiev, so yeah. about 400 kilometers west of Kiev. Yeah, so that trip 
you, you need to have a full tank of fuel. But mm. fuel was the one thing that became scarce. Of so course. coordinating when like, okay, here's this gas station that's giving out X amount of uh, gallons per person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of stuff really helped us. Right, sending multiple people down to actually get mm-hmm. the amount of fuel that you need. And so how much had you prepared before you received, you know, you're at Dice and you received that code black message? Like what was actually already stockpiled or ready to go? The, the battalions, I imagine, you'd already set up, but you're learning other things like the payments and stuff along the way. What was there so, in regards to an infrastructure? Uh, we've, um, uh, we, we've rented a few properties, but not enough as it turned out. Um, so uh, we were essentially ready to start, well, kind of like renting, right? In the um, west of because, Ukraine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the in around uh, the Kiev region. Um, so we had a few apartments, we had stockpiles of food, um, and uh, it just so happened that um, the studio holograph, um, that was the same week that they were moving offices, right? And instead of breaking the lease on the old office, um, we, we got lucky. Uh, it was kind of like this apartment, like, uh, you know, like a two-story tall apartment um, that was used as an, as an office. So they didn't break the lease on that and then used that as temporary shelter um, and mm-hmm. prep that for people to be able to come in and, well, you know, be able to um, be safe, warm, and, uh, and have a shower. Yeah. So the preparation was mostly on, like, um, okay, the, the humanitarian stuff. Mm. Did you have team members that lost their homes that were displaced due to shelling or anything like that? Um, we had people who were in the blast radiuses. Um, yeah, wow. Fortunately, no one has uh, lost their their actual apartment buildings or mm-hmm. you know their apartments. But um, it, it's difficult because um, unlike um, in the U.S. or in many Western countries, um, in Ukraine, you will typically own your real estate. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's a bigger conversation because, um, yeah. yeah, yes, today many younger people will take out mortgages, but uh, there will be apartments like passed on to you, right? So you will yes, actually own okay. it. Generation, um, intergenerationally. Yes, yes gotcha. Yes. Um, and many people just felt like super terrible about leaving their livelihoods behind right um yeah, so, I can imagine. Um, yeah so people that that came to lviv in the first three months and we we're just recounting all of these events because it's still a little bit hazy right yes but it was okay. um, a race against time to um get people an apartment get people what they need um get the people that uh, can leave to the border right because mm-hmm. that was also critical because we didn't know how bad it would escalate and how fast so there were lines of um tens of kilometers of people just trying to get out into poland so let's actually talk about that in a timeline Mm -hmm. sense alex so you mentioned you get the code black message you've got stuff ready to go you've got places rented in kiev you you know that you're heading to lviv uh, for some of the folks you've got concerns about you know some of your you know, uh, male employees not being able to leave the country or, you know, getting getting the women and children out as fast as you possibly can. What is that timeline? Can you break us down over those first few days of taking these approximately 100 folks and, you know, 80 to 100 folks in Ukraine and mm-hmm. mobilizing them? Like how, how fast did that happen and how successful was it? So ma- the majority uh, was able to mobilize within 
a day, right? So within the first mm -hmm. 24 hours. And uh, most people um, will have either taken uh, the cars, uh, mm -hmm. their cars uh, to Lviv or uh, were on the first evacuation trains. Yeah. Uh, now, we did have a few people that got extremely unfortunate in terms of the timeline because um, one of uh, the significant others of um, studio leads, um, she went uh, to see her parents and uh, was supposed to leave the day before of uh, the invasion, but got COVID. Mm -hmm. So she had to stay ah. there for a few days. And um, this was in Kharkiv, which had heavy shelling in the beginning. Oh, no. So that was mildly uh, terrifying. Um, other, um, you know, like uh, difficulties uh, came from uh, just some people who, uh, you know, couldn't leave, right? Uh, who mm -hmm. had like immobilized parents or things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the timeline is really like the majority of the movement happened in the first day. Um, then uh, the next few days was when uh, people who couldn't immediately move, we were like, they were catching on to... Yeah. Um, to, to getting out. Um, and then in some regions that weren't as affected immediately, uh, people decided to stay and, um, you know, help out however they can for the Ukrainian army and um, just general humanitarian aid to people who can't take care of themselves. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, some we're, we're talking about mobilizing an evacuation, but I um, imagine for some of them, whether it be, you know, you know, even if they're, even if they don't have to stay, there must've been an urge for, some of your team to actually stick around, whether it be, you know, to fight or whether it be to actually, you know, um, volunteer themselves in various ways. Did you, was that a conversation that you had had with folks leading up to the invasion as well? Or was that something that sort of just came about in the moment? Um, it, Those who chose to we, stay. We attempted to have conversations, uh, but essentially we took a very top-down approach, uh, mm. well, a light sensor so. <laughs> the camera will just a second. Um, yeah. we, we've had a lot of conversations, but um, the, the approach was very top down, like, hey, you have to do this, right? Like, yeah. just just do what um, you're told based on this information, yeah. which is maybe not the nicest approach. But uh, for example, for one of our employees um, uh, from um, a slightly remote region in Ukraine, uh, what happened is... Um, uh, he was already in the process of relocating to the Netherlands, uh, to mm -hmm. our Dutch office. And um, he wanted to postpone receiving his documents because he just wanted to, you know, hang out and whatnot. We're like, no, you have your documents ready. You go to Kiev right now, you pick them up. Um, I, I believe it was a Monday that he picked it up. And on that Tuesday, he uh, left the country on like random flights. Like we're like, okay, just get on any flight anywhere. Yeah, um, and because of that, he's, you know, um, over half a year right now, uh, since February, he's here in the Netherlands and not stuck, um, you know, in the cold. Um, yeah. But not everyone was as fortunate or was able to do that. But um, let's just talk more about um, the uh, the people that we could extract, right? Because yeah, there was a yeah. whole, whole operation there, right? So I mentioned... Um, uh, the, this guy that we, we were able to extract right before the war, but our head of HR, um, she was um, in Kiev in a similar situation, supposed to get the documents on February 23rd, the day before mm -hmm. the invasion. Uh, and right around that same time, all of the embassies started closing. Uh, 
So mm -hmm. you can imagine that she's there with her husband and a two-year-old daughter waiting for these documents that never come. And yeah. uh, her story is really fascinating because um, uh, then she went back to one of the areas that she lived in and um, there was shelling um, a lot. And she was at the core of coordinating all of this. Um, and yeah, as soon director as... Director of HR globally as well, right? Director of HR? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so she spent three months there um, doing this um, and then finally uh, was able to find uh, a way to get to the border with Poland uh, where we uh, picked her up and um, got uh, to the Netherlands. Um, but what happened with her husband, because, you know, he, they have one kid, right? Um, mm -hmm. He stayed there for um, until August, where in August he was able to um, somehow miraculously drive down to Crimea, right? Get, uh, get ac accepted to Crimea, right? Somehow, uh, <laughs> then drive the long way around through the Crimean Bridge to Russia, all the way to St. Petersburg, and then enter the European Union through the Baltic states. Wow. And we're like listening to that story, like, holy shit. So now, yeah. anyway, uh, long story short, they're uh, now happy in the Netherlands. Uh, and we've had um, many people like that from uh, different subsidiaries uh, move. Um, it was uh, at one point in Latvia, uh, we've had uh, close to 10 people just um, like my, my parents had this Airbnb business, which we shut down and just housed everyone. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, we have this, you know, by Dutch standards, it's a large house, it's like three bedrooms, right? So we just yeah. filled it to the brim with people uh, before we were able to find more permanent housing. Mm -hmm. And it was like, uh, you know, not going through shelling, but imagine just receiving a lot of uh, people um, and just getting everyone situated, right? Yeah, of course, which is in a way, you know, for folks involved is traumatic in and of itself. You know, it's not, it's, you may not be being shelled, but you're, you're still feeling the effects of the war of the invasion. Absolutely. And I, re <laughs> I remember a note from your, from your Dice Europe talk that Olga was doing all of this, evacuating everyone. And, you know, with the situation with her husband and her child and her, her own, her own situation whilst running the entire company's hiring processes as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, they somehow hired <laughs> over 20 people, uh, during all of that. Right. Wow. But, uh, it, it's so just, it, it's super. Mm -hmm. That's a question, interestingly, to while all this is happening, whilst we're still in this timeline of these, these evacuations happening out of Ukraine and people, you know, having to do these incredible things to, to get to safety um, and the mobilization of your team and the organization of that, what was the environment like for your studios in the Netherlands or in Seattle or, you know, folks based around the world and to, you know, like you're a global walk, workforce, right? Like walk me through a bit of what this was like for folks outside of Russia or Ukraine. Well, so most people uh, understood what was happening, right? Um, and mm. many people were involved on our backend operations so just, you know, making sure that um, the priorities are met because I said the priorities like uh, preservation of life is first and foremost. So any decision you make that may impact life is more important than anything. Right. right. And so business, you had explicitly uh, laid yeah. out these priorities in, in order. Okay. Amazing. So top is priority of life, save lives at all costs, yeah. essentially. Yep. Yeah. Uh, save lives. And then uh, second was uh, reactive. Uh, something is threat life threatening to the business. Right. Mm -hmm. um, then take care of your employees. And then it just went, went, went down that way. Um, yep. 
but um, what this really did in in the whole midst of it, because um, a lot of people then uh, that weren't involved in the Ukraine side of things were involved on the Russian extraction side of things, right? Mm-hmm. Because we had a lot of people in Russia that we want to extract, and that whole process intermixed with um, what was happening in Ukraine um, really showed um, a lot of you know like true nature of people. It's kind yeah. of uh, interesting because from a psychology perspective, you will see exactly um, who is who in a high stress, high stakes situation. And yep. that was fascinating for me, at least to to observe. It's kind of like when, when you watch movies and then, you know, like people are dumped on, the, on an island um, and need to survive <laughs> and show their true nature. True um, this was happening. Yeah. So we've, um, out of that, we learned a lot in terms of... Um, you know, whom you can trust because you can, this, this was literally a life and death situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people that stepped up, um, they're going to have really great careers. Uh, it, it's like, there there are a few people who have shown that they're the most reliable, the most responsive uh, people in the world that will, um, like no matter where they end up uh, with us or anywhere else, they will have mm-hmm. great careers, they will build great teams. And then um, we had to make organizational changes as well um, because a lot of these processes are similar to, in a way, to game development where you have mm. a lot of dependencies coming together, right? Like, um, you know, it's just that if someone um, doesn't file a bug in Jira, you know, okay, the game might get delayed or might have a bug. Here, if someone doesn't file uh, a ticket um, that they have reserved a flight or misspelled someone's last name, yeah. we may not have a person working with yeah. us. Yeah, the so stakes. the stakes are... But like the process is the same or similar in a way. Um, And so, yeah, it's interesting you talking about people going on to great careers. You mean in the sense, uh, in this sense, in that you you watch people um, that operate with a calm clarity in these types of situations and are able to move through it. Even when the stakes are bumped up, uh, they're able to actually move through it. Um, Just like you may see them problem solve across the team working on a video game. Exactly. People whom you can rely on, because whenever yeah. you build a team, um, it's always a little bit of a gamble um, mm-hmm. if a person is going to work out or not, right? And then the yep. greatest team members, if you can, um, like right now, I, I know with 100% certainty whom we can rely on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the test that no one ever wanted to have to run, right? But it, but yeah, yeah. interestingly, you yeah, got but, that extraordinary you know, not, chance. Not everyone, not everyone passed that test, right? That, yeah. That's the interesting part. And, so... Uh, yeah. Sorry, continue, please. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say that um, sometimes people who are, um, you know, who get into positions uh, where uh, they have a little bit of influence in the company um, mm-hmm. and maybe ended up there by accident or by managing upwards. Or, yes. Um, when, when the test came, you know, some people didn't pass. And because of that, we now know whom uh, we we can rely on. Interesting. So I, now I want to go back to this mobilization before we go over to Russia, because obviously I imagine that's a, it's it's a whole different approach. It's fascinating, you know how to, how you must have gone about that and the logistics there, because it's a it's completely different in a sense. But you've moved and mobilized all these people to Lviv in the first day for the majority of them. What happens once they're in Lviv? Like, were you were you trying to get folks out of Ukraine via the Polish border? Did you 
have a base of operations there? Did people sort of just get to work and continue living out their lives, hoping to return to Kiev at some point in time? I mean, we obviously had no idea at that point in time how long this would be going on for, that we'd be here in November potentially still talking about it. What happened once that mobilization found itself in Lviv? So when people landed in Lviv, uh, the people who could leave, uh, we would facilitate them to go to the border. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. To go into Poland and then to one of our European locations. Uh, mm-hmm. For everyone else, um, I mentioned that we had rented a new office for uh, Studio Holograph, mm-hmm. and uh, the size of it was uh, like for growth. Right. So everyone yeah. who uh, landed in Lviv um, had an office suddenly, and <laughs> uh, after two years of working remotely, um, it kind of was uh, unexpectedly a positive feeling because yeah. many people haven't met, and now they live together. Right. Um, after working for a couple of years, that, that's a bonding experience. And then uh, it was relatively calm in Lviv uh, during that time. So people um, would go off to work, right? And yep. have uh, water cooler conversations despite everything going on. It, um, it was a positive team building experience. Um, but you're right that uh, many people were like, okay, well, I want to go home as soon as it's quote unquote yeah. safe. Yeah, so there definitely was that, obviously, as you said, with these intergenerational homes and people's lives still in a place, I can I can relate to that. Now, it can seem a bit cold to talk about this, um, this next question that I'm about to ask, considering the stakes of what's going on and, you know, a full-scale invasion. But, you, you know, you are running a business at the end of the day and you've got these other people working over it. Like, how actually was this... First question I have is like, how is this financed? Were you just digging into the coffers for this? Were you just digging into and just obviously it doesn't matter. As you say, save life at all costs. Were there organizations or, you know, NFPs or anything that were helping you out? So this was all self-funded. Um, we we knew that we couldn't put a price tag on people's lives, right? Yeah. And um, so far we've spent uh, just a little bit over a million dollars of, um, you know, like excess um, spending yep. that would not be like normal, normally done. Uh, but yeah, Which it is was nothing all... really when you think about the stakes of what's yeah. going on. Like, you know, you pay that again, probably five times over. Yeah, yeah. probably in terms of, you know, just team morale and the loyalty that that you get by doing these kind of things but mm. it, it's it's not been about funding because we had recently gone uh, public at that point right yes I so remember, yeah. and the markets were were doing quite well so we we knew that we had backup options should should push comes to shove yeah but uh, in the end um like in the first half of the year at least uh we didn't even um do an exception for that million dollars because the business despite everything did really really well um so we just took that million dollar you know loss and mm-hmm. absorbed it and uh, didn't really feel it yeah it's such a fortunate situation to be in i, I imagine there's been so many so many organizations that not only may not have had the capacity to support their employees, you know, and their team members to this degree, but, you know, would have put them out of business when they chose chose to do so. Um, okay. And so you were talking about morale and things like that. And these folks actually now going and getting a chance to work together in Lviv when they may not have before. What were you, how many games did you have these, were these teams working on at this point in time? I mean, you've got these folks in, in, Kiev was that you mentioned the the um, holograph team was what other teams were working away here? Well, uh, 
the the key products uh, that were being worked on there was uh, Secret Neighbor, which is our uh, game as a service uh, multiplayer mm-hmm. uh, title. And yeah. uh, during this whole process, uh, we were able to definitely not smuggle dev kits for all consoles <laughs> to all the console <laughs> platforms. We did not like, do we that. We did not, not do that. No, yeah. but somehow they ended up there uh, in yeah. uh, Lviv. Miraculous. Um, yeah, um, and we were able to set up a pipeline uh, for the team to um, develop for all platforms at once. Because typically, uh, teams of our size, you know, like 20, 30 people, um, they mm-hmm. will uh, depend on external porting, and we really didn't mm-hmm. like that. So as yeah. all of this is happening, the team is uh, playing around with dev kits, figuring out how to deploy to them, uh, learning all of the cert requirements. And um, in... Just a couple of weeks ago, we were able to roll out the first patch that rolled out to all platforms for that game from <laughs> within the beep. Wow. So that's quite quite a challenge. And then um, the second big project uh, being worked on there is Dead Side, which is also mm-hmm. a game as a service. It's kind of like, um, like DayZ meets PUBG, yeah. I guess, in yep. open world. And the team lead of that um, is in Kiev. And mm-hmm. uh, over, like, since the beginning of the war, he has been responsible for um, bringing that game to a whole new level. And in the evenings and on the weekends, he's um, uh, welding uh, military equipment together and helping the armed forces. Yeah, so wow. It, it's, uh, it's definitely like, you know, takes your mind off game development, I guess. But yeah. those are the two big projects that are being developed in Ukraine. Did you find that actually getting things set up and keeping, I imagine some leaders, you know, doing this for their for their team, they might've just been like, don't worry about the games, you know, blah, blah, blah. But did you find that the team actually needed the games or needed something to sort of keep their minds, you know, everyone processes things in different ways. Did you feel, did you find that they wanted to actually con- just dive straight into things again and get then some of that normalcy back to their life or a distraction perhaps? Um, it In a high stress situation when you don't have control over what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. You really need to do something where you can feel accomplishment, right? Yeah. So getting back to work was what everyone wanted because like you said, it's a distraction from what's going on. And when you yeah. have a level of control over the events in that part of your life, it brings mm. a sense of calm internally, right? Yes, so we were we were really um, advocating for everyone to uh, take time and whatnot, but everyone just yeah. dove back in, into work. Okay. Now, let's actually flip to the other side of things. So... Code Black happens, we'll go back to DICE. You're actually, no, no, let's go all the way back, right? Because you're talking about hypothesizing and looking at the map with your studio heads in Ukraine and stuff, and you're thinking, okay, if this happens, you've got these three major you know, scenarios that could go down and planning for them. But whilst you're planning for all of this, you still have a hundred odd developers in Russia. So what were the conversations and what was the planning at that point in January when you start first having these chats about your Russian employees and the whole Russian side of things. Yeah, so to be honest, that was a consideration that um, was second priority, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And when we figured out what to do, like in that last week of February with Ukraine, we we had a basic idea um which was research on visas 
Because with the Russian passport, what many people don't realize with like your know, passport from the UK or the US is that it's not possible to travel. Like, There's uh, not many places you can go. Yeah. Yeah. So you especially you settle really... as well, right, Alex? Like I've got a yeah. I've got a, a best friend who's whose partner is Russian, and it's just like they're you know they move around from place to place because it's hard for them to find a place to settle. Yeah, you can't get a residency, a residency permit in many places. So we're like, okay, um, it cannot be a um, an ex-Soviet country. Uh, that mm. was consideration number one, because um, at one point, uh, if the, there would be partial mobilization of uh, uh, civilians, uh, you know, to right, uh, conscript them, then there would be a huge wave there. But mm. it, an ex-Soviet country is still a risk factor, right? And then we've seen that with uh, the rise in Kazakhstan um, earlier this year and a few other um, mm-hmm. things that were happening. So no ex-Soviet country needs to accept Russian passports and mm-hmm. um, it needs to be continentally as in territorially detached from Russia. And right. there were not that many options outside of the Bahamas, which sounds nice, but uh, logistically getting everyone to the Bahamas would be a nightmare and you know, hurricanes. <laughs> yep. But uh, we ended up on Serbia uh, because uh, Serbia is very uh, like Russian passport friendly. Um, mm-hmm. It's also... Um, significantly more westernized than uh, any of the ex uh, post soviet republics yeah. and to be honest uh, that, that was about it so there's a, well there's a good game dev and vfx scene there as well right already yeah yep so when uh, we we pulled the plug on okay guys now everyone leave your country where are you going we don't know yet probably serbia how we don't know yet just pack your bags, get to the airport. Um, it mm-hmm. was literally like that with everyone from Russia because um, we knew that at any point um, conscription might happen right. and that um, all of the airlines that uh, were previously operating in Russia, this is like the great exodus, right? It's the weeks when all of the companies started to shut down in Russia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So flights were getting canceled in real time. Um, countries were changing their entry uh, requirements in real time. And for everyone that was able to, well, just pick up their uh, suitcase, we said, just go. So people would come to the airport, not knowing which flight they would be on. Um, We would have a central unit coordinating, okay, um, this flight doesn't look like it's going to get canceled. We have a ticket for you here. Just fly, like, you know, fly to Turkey, fly to Mm -hmm. Georgia, fly to Armenia, to other countries. And, um, that was like step one. Step one is get out anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Step two was, okay, now you have a hotel for a week, take a breather, you know, go to the beach or something, and <laughs> then we'll figure it out. So yeah, that okay. was really sporadic. It was much less planned because um, we we didn't know what that we would have mm-hmm. to think this far ahead. Um, and that was when uh, just like thinking in real time and uh, solving problems as they uh, come along um, mm-hmm. helped a lot. And uh, when we landed in Serbia, uh, we had a few people just start doing rapid research. And the temporary solution uh, was that you could uh, stay there for 30 days with a Russian passport, and then you could leave for one day and come back the next day, and then it would reset the visa <laughs> right, for okay. 30 days. So was there a few people on had... how many times you could do that, or could you just sort of jump back and forth? Every yeah, day? don't worry about the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's what, what, <laughs> no we were, what we were yeah. told. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. So then figure it we out. set up a company there, uh, figured out how to you know, open up bank accounts, uh, get mm-hmm. people uh, residency permits, start mm-hmm. renting a whole bunch of apartments. And now <laughs> it's up to a point where we have an office in uh, yeah. Belgrade, like official tiny built Belgrade. And is this a is this still a sort of all hands on deck? People are just helping out however they can initiative, or do you have like a global operations head that is doing this stuff usually anyway for when someone moves to a country, you know, a new hire, or is this Olga again, you know, um, who's actually renting these places and you know talking to embassies or you know all of this sort of stuff? So uh, it. it- Definitely Olga's uh, department there uh, has a hand. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and locally, uh, one of our producers who is like uh, responsible for producing several games, uh, mm-hmm. he also kind of organically became the, um, you know, the the producer on site. You know, yeah, okay, make right. a game or make a bunch of residency permits. What's the difference, right? <laughs> so Vladimir, yeah. he's, uh, he's been really, really helping out there. And yeah. Um, it, 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 these kind of roles, you know, you can't hire for them. Uh, people just grow oh. into them organically in the midst of it. Yeah. So the pointed question for you is when this happens, so you've mobilized folks in Ukraine and now you look to your crews in Russia, was this a decision when you were like, let's get everyone out of Russia, everyone's got to go. Was this a business and political decision in regards to tiny build does not want to support Russia, we don't want to invest in Russia anymore, like a lot of countries, as we just mentioned, sorry, a lot of companies, as we just mentioned, were doing. Or is it, and then that had the added impact of, well, shit, we've got to mobilize everyone. Or had you decided before that point, before there was even anything sort of political um, or, you know, a business motivation, were you like, these people are our own and it doesn't matter that they're the aggressor, there is a risk of conscription and they've got to go. And it has the added bonus of not supporting or investing in Russia. Well, actually, none of those. Um, oh. We knew that. Um, so I, I don't get into politics, right? I, I don't have citizenship anywhere in the world. So I'm like, you know, whenever people are talking politics, I'm like, can we talk about like the sky is blue? Um, you don't have citizenship anywhere in the world. That's, no, a, I, that's an I amazing fact. Passport from Latvia. Um, yeah. So I was born in the Soviet Republic of Latvia. And mm-hmm. when the Soviet Union fell, uh, my parents didn't get citizenship because my mom is from Ukraine, my dad's from Belarus. So they're like, yeah. well, you're not local. And yeah. then um, I have this, an alien's passport from the country that I was born in. But uh, Rogue you know, agent. Yeah, you have no idea uh, what it's <laughs> like to travel to the U.S., uh, yeah, when I your bet. passport causes all of the red flags, right? They scan mm-hmm. and they, it goes beep, 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 supervisor, special room. But if if we look at um, just the, the stance, right? Um, I, I like to take a logical and practical approach. Um, mm-hmm. There's going to be propaganda, right? Uh, there's going to be information bubbles. Uh, mm-hmm. There's going to be um, essentially a an ironclad wall that goes down in terms of logistics, Right. Yeah. So people that would not want to leave in the long run, I don't think they would have a career with us um, because the cultural shift will just drift apart. Right. Interesting. And then basic yeah. things like, uh, okay, well, we need to do ray tracing. Oh, we can't ship you a GPU. Oh, your GPU is already dead and you can't buy a new one and we can't ship you anything. Right. Yeah. Um, what are we going to do then? Oh, you 
you know, in, in February, we're like, people are going to get conscribed. So yeah. knowing that, and you can deny it all you want from you know, people who are uh, in that situation. Logically, that is what will happen. So yeah. at any point, we might start losing people without warning, right? And yeah. uh, they would be sent away and then um, not be able to work with us. So all of those things were the primary factor. Like, like I said, I don't care about politics. I don't care about you know, signaling that, hey, we don't support this, we don't support that. Yeah. Um, for me, it's about logic and practic, uh, practical mm-hmm. aspects. So we knew that uh, for the key people, we absolutely had to get everyone out. And then, yeah. um, well, we didn't say that, um, hey, if you stay in Russia, you're not going to be able to work with us. We're like, mm-hmm. long term, it's probably not a great idea. Um, and that's a very difficult conversation to have. So mm-hmm. to my uh, delight, um, the vast majority of people were like, yes, we're leaving. Um, some took a little bit longer than others. Uh, some were able to do day one, but we were able to extract the majority of our workforce into Serbia and also into uh, the European Union for those that were able to get visas mm-hmm. um, quite fast. And right now we have, you know, just very, very few people in Russia. Uh, you, you can count them on the palm of your hand. Speaking of information bubbles and, you know, cultural differences and things, did you actually encounter many people, you know, the elephant in the room is actually saying to some of your Russian team or all of them, hey, you got to go. Did you have anyone turn around and be pro-invasion or did you have any awkward conversation, extremely awkward conversations or no conversation no, about that? None. None. Um, we, we, we've, during the pandemic, we developed a hiring process that um, has a really in-depth uh, personality test that mm-hmm. helps us understand things that you will not be able to understand um, if it's just like a, you know, um, a Zoom interview, right? Yeah, uh, where it's all virtual. Because, uh, you know, like body language and things like that, you, you can't really tell that based on the camera. Um, and that also allowed us to make sure that um, people that join us have a wide enough worldview to understand what was going on. So Interesting. Yeah, we, we didn't have to have those conversations. Was that targeted towards the region or the, the situation? Because, I mean, it didn't really develop until like, you know, end of end of 21 in a, in a big way. Or was that just sort of like a happy, happy accident of your personality test because, that you developed during COVID? That you well, managed to bring people on board who shared values? I think it, it, it's not a happy accident. It's just part of the culture, right? You mm. want to build a localized culture, Um so I, I believe that most people that we have um, will be able to work with any other person in the company, which doesn't usually happen in international companies. You have these buckets of people, you know, like uh, people from this region will be able to work with this region. Mm-hmm. Here we, we, we were fortunate enough to have a lot of different nationalities in the company. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing how much it helps. Like that's when we talk about diversity in games, you know, or diversity in the workplace. This is this is all of it. You know, this is this is what it means being able to think outside of some type of homogenized group think and be able to see things from these different perspectives and have them permeate throughout the culture. Of course. So, <laughs> interestingly, I've also heard you talk about why you know. What does this for you as a CEO of a com- of a company that's obviously invested heavily in 
you know, Ukraine, which is, you know, as you just mentioned, the your, your mother's birth nation and then, you know, Russia as well. The Now for all of these folks who are actually, because you're not the only company here that's doing this, you're not the only game developer that's done this, that's had to displace their, their staff or folks who are looking for work. I mean, we all saw it all over LinkedIn and our various channels when it was starting. We still see it sometimes today. What would you say for other folks leading companies or hiring people or that have the potential to to provide work to folks in this region um you know welcoming highly skilled russians or ukrainians is um people mostly and i'm asking from complete ignorance here is that mass exodus still happening is people are people still looking for work is there a lot of the workforce displaced from the region or have people largely settled like you're saying your team in lviv has shipped an update um, so what happened um, is many companies, especially in Russia, were way too late to react. Um, hmm. Or companies that have you know like studios in Russia, they're like, ah, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about. It. Like they're not going to shut down payments. Oh shit, they shut down payments. Um, so many people were just like in wait mode, and then suddenly realized, oh, we can't actually pay people. Okay, shut everything hmm. down. So um, by different estimates, there are between. Uh, three and seven thousand people uh, in Russia, highly skilled, that uh, are in need of work. And the way to look at, it, I believe, is um, you you win a war by draining the brains of the nation. Hmm. Uh, that's what happened in World War II with uh, some of the best scientists from Germany being recruited by the U.S. And I believe that governments should follow this because what happened in the European Union is Russia bad, Russian passport bad punish Russian passport. And it's kind of like, if you think about it, it's fighting fascism with Nazism in a way. What hmm. you should do is the complete opposite, is say, okay, highly skilled, doesn't matter what passport. Oh, you're from Russia? Welcome. Because then you drain the country of its brains and uh, you give all of these people uh, jobs and um, you build a stronger economy for yourself. So why on earth is this not happening? I do not know, but there are many, many people that are looking for work and also in Ukraine because a similar thing happened in Ukraine when, you know, if you're running a uh, slightly lower margin business like um, outsourcing um, and you have five hours of electricity a day, um, you're not going to get that many clients maybe and sustaining that business is difficult. So there have been companies that shut down and people looking for work. Uh, now, the question is, uh, well, with Russia, it's pretty clear you need to like um, either extract people or you know deal with visas and whatnot. But mm -hmm. with Ukraine, uh, what we've been doing is, um, okay, well, we knew that the shelling was going to come eventually um, because it's, you know, it's it's a, a strategy to uh, kill the uh, civilian infrastructure and have uh, a country freeze um, without direct combat. So we're like, okay, uh, what do we do in case shit really hits the fan, right? Um, going from this scenario, which is the mild scenario, wh where um, there is bombing of the infrastructure, there is no heating, no gas, and whatnot. That's a mild scenario. The, mm -hmm. the cold black scenario is a, uh, a mushroom cloud, but let's not get into that one yet. Yeah. Um, so in the mild scenario, we're like, okay, what can we do, right? What if the city is no power, nothing, and it's deep winter? Um, well, we bought um, a couple of vans, 
um, that we kind of like equipped for winter so that people mm-hmm. can you know be mobile. Um, we bought a whole bunch of camping equipment um, and we're like, okay, the goal is to have enough stuff to survive a month of camping in deep Ukrainian winter. That was the goal. And just a week ago, that came in quite handy when all of the generators, all of the gas heaters and whatnot were used to heat up, well, uh, space and cook food um, in Lviv when there was no electricity. And then the second step after that was, okay, um, if this is happening long term, you know, your pipes will freeze in the house, so you will not get heating again. Um, Your electricity will be kind of useless because you don't have running water. What do we do? So we rented a couple of uh, houses um, in the surrounding regions around uh, Kiev, around Lviv, which are fully autonomous, right? That can house dozens of people so that people can just, you know, have a place to stay, get warm. And also uh, we got Starlinks so they can work. Oh, you do. Okay, right. A bunch of 4G routers, I imagine, as well. Get ready to yeah. get ready to go and do work. Well, 4G yeah. goes down in about five hours after uh, electricity goes out, as we have learned, oh, because the generator has about five hours of uh, electricity. Are the outages somewhat reliable? Like, is it a, is it on a cycle or is it just like complete chaos? Things can sort of knock out. And are the outages reaching as far as Lviv or is it mostly in this central Kiev? It is reaching Lviv. Um, it's not not as predictable as uh, we would like um, it to be. Uh, But in general, uh, think about this way. Over the past two weeks, you Mm -hmm. you get five hours of electricity and it's below zero outside. Um, Think about what you would do in that situation. That has been the level of comfort that our Ukrainian colleagues are experiencing. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's really is. You don't think, I think for those of us on this side of the world, you know, or away safe, safe and home, you know, in our, in our heated places or in regions where it doesn't get that cold, even it's, these are some of the, the impacts or the, the consequences or the dangers of these invasions that you don't think about. It might not even be the shelling that is a concern day to day. You know, it can be the, the, literally having no heat or having no running water because running water has been, been an issue as well, right? Yeah, it, it's everything, right? It's all of the yeah. utilities because um, uh, typically uh, heating is done um, in uh, not like you have your own, you know, like uh, boiler room in your apartment or in your house. Mm-hmm. Typically, it's done in a centralized spot somewhere in, in the city, like somewhere nearby, and then it pumps hot water into the buildings around, right? Oh, so all wow. you need to do okay. is take out that um, part. Right? You know, if it doesn't mm. have electricity, then you don't have any heating. Same with uh, hot water as well. It gets heated outside of your building and then pumped mm. uh, through the region. Through the building, through the region. Yep. Wow. Yeah, see, even these these small little pieces of context that you just miss over here in Australia, you know, watching the news or even digging into it, you know, as I have to some degree. Hmm. Amazing. And so what about other studios in the region? Alex, like surely it's not like you just only know of Tony Bill, tiny Tony Bill, tiny build in the region, right? And you're just were were you talking to other studio heads in the region? Were you were there collective efforts to mobilize people, or was it folks? Were you just like we've got our own, um, and you looked after your own, or were you talking and coordinating with other folks? Um, we did um, reach out to other uh, studios and. Mm. Um, I guess I, I'm just a little bit too paranoid about these kind of things. 
and uh, I can see like how even our own um, studio heads at one point thought that I was just like a crazy maniac running around uh, screaming with no merit. Mm. Um, so it, it, it felt like um, not everyone took this as seriously. And to be honest, I would have also loved it to not be as serious, right? So yeah, it would just be like, oh, yeah, Alex just sent me a panic email again. Haha, ha, mm-hmm. very funny. Um, so it, it's difficult to take these kind of decisions and then own, own up to them. But um, I guess the the cheat code uh, that I have is I I don't give a crap. I don't, I don't as in, I, I don't give a crap about um, a lot of consequences of my own perception. Right. Yeah, you don't care what people. Like, uh, you don't care if people yeah. think you're you seem like a crazy person if you're out there trying to save lives. Interesting note on that. You know, they often say in things like say, um, you know, when something goes down, like a, a mass shooting or something, one of the most dangerous things is people actually not realizing what's happening and not actually processing that. Hey, this is, you know, it's not just fireworks or it's that person isn't just pretending. This is a real life or death situation and I need to mobilize right now. I need to, you know, for the last 36 years or whatever of my life, I've never had to deal with anything like this, but now is the time to mobilize. Talk to me a little bit, Alex, about what it felt like, you know, if I could just in, indulge you for a second in having the space to be, you know, thinking about yourself in this situation and being, you know, for especially a lot of our listeners who will be running their own studios or even leading their own teams, you're a sole CEO of, you know, a tiny build, which you, which you founded as well. Like what, what was it, what was it like having this, this burden of leadership in the middle of a, an invasion by armed forces of another nation, you know, what, and you, and when people think that, you know, is, is he a bit crazy? Is he over panicked? What, what was it like having that, that pressure on your, on your shoulders and working with the team? Um, it, it's extremely difficult, right? And difficult part is, um, making objective decisions, right? Because, Mm. uh, you have so much information flying around you, um, and different perspectives, uh, from a subjective view on the situation. And the, the challenge and the goal of, uh, leadership is to take all of the information you have, uh, and assessing it in an objective way that is beneficial to the priorities that your company has. That, mm-hmm. That's the most difficult part. And then um, at the same time, it's about just being there, right? Being yeah. there and uh, not letting your emotions dictate your decisions. Um, I think uh, th- this, this really takes a lot of discipline. And mm-hmm. I think this is the first time when I realized that uh, like back in February, I was um getting out of shape and i was like oh shit i really need to start start exercising and um because had i been in better shape myself physically then mentally i would be able to process so much better and we (laughs) were coming off the pandemic which was at that point to me it was very clear that hey it's it's about mental health priorities no longer about like actual threat to your physical health Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really, you know, in that whole subject, um, of mental health and figuring out how do I improve myself? And this was like the really, really difficult challenge. Um, the, um, I think the risk here is just to, you know, go into alcoholism and, um, smoking and whatnot and trying to figure out mechanisms. how do you, yeah, yeah. And 
at that point, like uh, I, I just think that physical health is so, so important. So you yeah. need to have like some sort of hobby that uh, you can, you know, go swimming, running, whatever, like some sort of physical exercise that is able to help you reset your brain. Because for mm-hmm. me, that was running at that point. Um, I would just like, you know, like overweight uh, running is not fun, but <laughs> I did that. <laughs> no, it is not. You just, yeah. you just reset your brain and you set your priority straight. Yeah. So it's about like that balance, right? Because it's very easy just to sit there in front of a monitor and just be obsessed over it all day mm-hmm. long and at one point become unproductive. Yeah. And was this something, you know, and I'm taking it from what you've just said that it is, it was, is the running was something that you had been, you'd been neglecting exercise. And then when this happened, you were like, I need this. And you, you got into it when this was happening. You're actually, I I actually, regardless of what's going on right now, I need to go out for a run. I need this thing to reset. I also want to challenge you a little bit on the, on the notion of making objective decisions, right? Because naturally as a leader, like, as you've said yourself, you're viewing everything through this subjective lens. Was there a part of you that was, that had to sort of let go or of this notion of objective decisions, especially with so much weight and people's lives for the first time ever, potentially making video games, right? Like people's lives in your hands and mobilizing hundreds of people across two nations or more. Was there a part of you that just had to come to grips with the fact that, you know, you are making subjective decisions and were there some calls where you just had to say to the team, this is what's happening, you know, objective decision, this is what I feel we we need to do? I feel like the the, the most important part of that decision-making was um, not falling in love with your decision. Hmm. It's about taking information as it goes and then augmenting your decision based on new information should that new information come in so i always told people in meetings um okay it's fine yes russia is really bad like fuck russia Mm -hmm. do we have any new information right now like this is the uh, direction that we're going with is there anything new that has happened if not then we're sticking with this decision if yes let's discuss yeah and you can't sit on decisions. This is something that I found myself doing um, a lot, especially in terms of you know like people decisions and whatnot. Um, is just sitting on decisions, right? Just waiting. In that situation, you can't. You, you just you, you make a snap decision, and you stick with it unless you have new information. Yeah, yeah. Just commit to those decisions, but be willing to change them. So you also touched on mental health and your own mental health through this and things that you needed to do, you know, clearing your head making sure that you're physically in shape and the weight of all of this. But we've gone through, obviously in the, in the heat of mobilizing everything, everyone and getting everyone into their proper places and folks out of Russia and things, but now you've got teams settled working on the games. Tell me a little bit about the long-term mental health implications of something like this. It's, you know, people have lost their homes or have been displaced from them. I'm sure tragically that some of your team have been affected by friends or family injured or perished throughout this, um, this horrible invasion. What, what is the, what is, what are you seeing at the studio now and how are you, how are you helping people through that? So we've uh, actually in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we invested into essentially internal services that are like on demand with HR on yeah, just like having counseling assistance program. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just, if you want uh, to talk to a professional, just, you know, let us know. We'll, we'll pay for it. 
Um, so that was step one. Um, here are the long-term implications. We will not know until the time comes. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really about um, the support and that feeling of community and making sure that people are talking to each other, right? Uh, because in an uh, office situation, you you have the water cooler conversations. You go, oh, yeah, I just did this on the weekend. Oh, you're into that as well. Yeah, cool. So building that trust between the employees um, is really, really important. And here, once people have gone through life-threatening situations together, you need mm-hmm. to um, facilitate that relationship and make sure that it grows within the teams. Um, so that's really what we're uh, focused on. And uh, in terms of mental health, I believe uh, it all comes down to the feeling of community, that feeling that you're part of something larger, because as much as many people say, oh, I am an introvert. No, you're not. Come on, we all, we're social beings by yeah, design. Yeah, we're social creatures. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And when it's a normal situation, like non-pandemic, right? Okay, you wake up, you go to the office, you have to brush your teeth, you have to change your clothes, otherwise you're not presentable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of routine really helps a lot of people. And when people kind of like roll out of bed, you're at your PC um, and do that for you know a few months straight, then yep. uh, it does impact your uh, mental health and also your physical health because those are completely connected. Um, That's interesting. I want to drill into that for a second because I know at DICE Europe this year, it was actually, it was one of the conversations that was happening across, mm-hmm. across the conference was, you know, this shift from, you know, for some studios from hybrid to now requesting people to go into the studio, you know, for cultural reasons or for the reasons that you've spoken about before. And obviously there are a number of studios, a vast number of studios that are still, you know, fully work from home or remotely or are fully hybrid, uh, totally flexible there. But there are a number of studios that are actually making the move back into the office space and often as well for what they perceive to be, you know, the the employees or the communities or the cultural greater good for their studio. So you found, and I guess we haven't really spoken about this, right? But I mean, are you saying that everyone in Lviv is like going into going into an office? People aren't working from home, quote unquote, in this situation. Absolutely. Part of this coming together in an office is, you know, a big part of that cultural and communal recovery. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm a strong believer that uh, going to the office is the best thing you can do for your own personal life, for your own health. And um, after long, long discussions, it, it all comes down to convenience, right? Because people um, who advocate for remote work uh, may understand that they you know, may even agree with the fact that uh, going to the office is more productive. But, it, you know, in if you've moved out of like an expensive state to live in uh, mm-hmm. and are now remote, of course, it's going to be inconvenient to go back to the office, right? Yeah. And for us, uh, it's been uh, pretty clear that for um, relationships in the company that have been established pre-pandemic, those relationships um, survive this remote transition, right? But forging new relationships uh, remotely is extremely difficult. Uh, just mm-hmm. building that trust factor between people because you can schedule all of the Zoom brainstorming calls you want, but that one idea you had over beers on a Friday after work, that's the mm-hmm. idea that drives a company forward. So I, I'm a strong believer that people need to get together. And uh, for us, it's been, okay, uh, if people are in the same location, go to the office. People have been going to the office in Belgrade, in Latvia, in the Netherlands, and um, we're now figuring out what to do in the U.S. because... Like I said, everyone moved around the U.S. Yeah, of course, um, yeah. 
So going forward, um, for our, like we call them work groups, you know, a bunch mm -hmm. of people who are remote in different locations. We just, uh, last weekend, we had a get scare. Um, yeah. A bunch of people flew out and uh, we walked around a whole bunch, talked and then had a strategy session that uh, is going to define the direction of the company for the next two years. <laughs> Amazing. Speaking of that community spirit as well, I, a fantastic book I read actually during COVID. It was like one of the best books to read during lockdown because it was just so positive was um, Rutger Bregman's Humankind. And, you know, in, in this he speaks about the resilience of, you know, uh, the spirit of folks and the amount of community during the shellings that the Germans were doing on Britain in World War II. Um, and I'm hearing, I was just listening to a podcast today, hearing quite remarkable stories that in some ways are, you know, counter to cultural norms of Ukraine in particular ways where, where the amount of community that, that folks are, that are, and resilience that is just coming out of this experience is, is, is quite phenomenal. Have you, have you seen something, I imagine you've seen something similar, like you've seen people no doubt at their very best throughout this, you know, of the human condition throughout this experience. Well, most definitely, right? Uh, I mean, um, in in a situation of extreme stress, um, there needs to be an outlet, and uh, our Ukrainian colleagues have been showing that in terms of resilience and real determination. Right. Mm. At the same time, um, I'm kind of like the downer in that situation. I'm like, okay, yes, we'll get Crimea back. And let's also prepare for a really harsh winter, right? Yeah, so yeah. let's get those blankets, let's get those starlings <laughs> yeah. and whatnot. Um, because um, resilience is one thing. Um, stamina and um, the war of attrition is a whole mm -hmm. other ball game. Um, because, you know, well, let's talk about that because, you know, we've been talking about the leading up to the invasion. We've spoken about the mobilization. We've spoken about the status quo now in the studio, but the war is still still raging, so to speak. How are you, Tiny Build, viewing this situation? Is it an open-ended thing? Like how, how are you actually planning now for the future? Well, we're planning with, uh, you know, obviously with margins of error, but... It's about mm -hmm. uh, the same priorities, right? How do we make sure that people are alive, are able to be productive, are safe? Um, and uh, some of the plans we already talked about, right? Like, you know, the yeah. the code black plan of get into a van and live in the forest for, for a month. Yeah. Um, the housing situation. And um, really from there, it's about uh, how do we predict this um, mm -hmm. and over-prepare. Right. So some of the things that we're talking about um, this week will be relevant in two or three months in January, February. Uh, yeah. Because um, in the depth of winter, um, like I, I'm in the Netherlands right now, and here they mm -hmm. have um, a, um, a, a phenomena called the Blue Monday, which is the last Monday of January, which is when suicide rates go up. They just spike. Yeah, because like, long like winter, seasonal right? affective disorder as well. Yeah. Yes lack of mm -hmm. vitamin D and whatnot. Um, so here I am, you know, outside of my duty is just telling people, take your goddamn vitamins. Have you taken your vitamin D today? <laughs> things like that, um, they, they don't seem like big things, but they are really, really important. And yeah. um, just keeping an eye out for, you know, signs of, uh, of people uh, being not 
happy i mean obviously how happy can you be but um yeah. feeling like they're contributing feeling that they are um, making progress that they are um, having a positive impact that that's a really good feeling yeah. and i really want people to focus on what they can impact um mm. versus you know just saying there and being angry which doesn't achieve much yeah just to provide some context for our listeners as well you know in january and february the the temperatures in ukraine can reach anywhere between you know lows of 15 to 20 degrees fahrenheit you know or what's that like five to ten degrees celsius or something so it's minus way below celsius yeah Yeah, way below freezing so it's not a nice winter that's for sure hmm so how many we've spoken about how many folks you had so just to go back to what you added over 100 folks or approximately 100 in russia you had 80 or so you were saying in ukraine how many people are still remaining in ukraine right now in lviv and then also how many people do you have in kiev still so Kiev is uh, flexible because the people who relocate to Lviv, uh, some of them left back to Kiev, but are now mm-hmm. like going back to Lviv. So yeah, um, I, I say it's yeah, it's about fifty people in total uh, that are still mm-hmm. in Ukraine that would not be able to leave in the short term. Yeah. Um, spread between you know, Kiev and Lviv, and that the, the spread is being flexible based on the situation. Because just very recently, uh, the mayor of um, Kiev said, well, it might be a good idea to leave Kiev because, you know, there's not going to be any water or electricity or heating. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And so what what are you seeing from other studios as well in the region? Have you seen just in general, obviously you can't speak for other studio heads here, but have how has the, the industry, the region, the regional industry sort of, gone through this i mean has it been completely ravaged as you said you shipped updates till like you've got some crew still there um what's it looking like for the the video games industry and studios there so it's difficult for me to speak uh without first-hand experience yeah. um what i can speak to is uh the people some of the people that we've hired um were um they really wanted to work with us because we were pretty transparent about what was going on and what we were doing mm-hmm. while they were sitting there waiting for um, their own management to do anything. And yeah. then the studios were, would just shut down. Uh, that to me is completely unacceptable. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that that's not how you treat people. Um, because in, in a time-sensitive situation, you need to act. Uh, now, um, other companies have done quite well and uh, we're actually uh, able to get ahead and um, do things like rent uh, charter buses, right? Um, so that uh, right before the invasion began, uh, they mm-hmm. would just load everyone onto a bus and uh, get them to safety. Um, other companies were able to even extract people before um, uh, the law kicked in that you, you know, if you're a male, you can't leave. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a mixed bag of um, of results, uh, I guess, and I'm happy to talk to other studios about this as well. Um, what I am curious about is, in general, the rate of production, um, because you know mm-hmm. many people are still there, many companies are still there. Um, is how do you go around, you know, like having five hours of electricity per day? And I know that many companies are doing what we're doing with generators, with like you know, centralized spaces, with things like that. Um, how long can you be productive in that environment, though? That is the big question. 
Yeah, I heard a story, a, a report from Kiev, you know, just an anecdote from I think it was a, a journalist with The Telegraph who was talking about a guy who works in IT in Kiev and um, he has meetings that he just absolutely has to be at and so he's built up some little alliances or deals with other folks and other companies around Kiev who have generators and so whenever he loses power he can actually just go from one to another to make sure that he he actually makes his meetings it's amazing some of the resourcefulness to just for folks to you know and in the face of an invasion and you're in the capital city that's experiencing shelling and other things and you're you're worried about making your IT securities meeting and making forming alliances to get stuff done it's incredible. Have you seen this spirit and this, you know, this um, this resilience? Again, we were talking about your teams outside of Russia and Ukraine. Have has it inspired other people? I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like watching your coworkers. And do, do you operate on Slack or anything? Is this, you know, are people having conversations? Is there an inspiration sort of and this culture and this community spirit seeping out into the rest of the world and tiny build via a Slack group or something? Um, yeah, there, there is Slack. There are uh, many other messages that people use. It's definitely helped people um, appreciate um, their situations more because uh, when I moved to the US, um, especially Seattle area, um, you know, everyone's like running around complaining and being kind of like angry and burned out. That was my impression mm. of the West Coast in general. <laughs> um, whereas uh, when you realize what you have and appreciate it, it makes you much more happy within, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you find happiness within, then anxiety, depression, all of that thing, all of those things go away, right? Yeah. Um, it, happiness comes from within. So I think um, this situation helped a lot of people understand and value what they really truly have um, mm-hmm. and reprioritize um, their lives uh, while also you know, helping um, their colleagues. Um, yeah, because we we really uh, like as human beings, um, you know, like whenever you reach like a you know a new level of salary or whatever, you kind of go, okay, now where is the next step, right? Yeah, and what then, else am I deficient in? You know. Yeah, and I've noticed this especially in the U.S. with you know the whole subject of burnout and things like that is that people don't just stop for a second and go like, okay, this is nice. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. going to sit here, enjoy this for a while. You know, people just keep on running for the next thing. And that does really what annoys me uh, in, uh, in our industry in general. Yeah. And so, you, yeah, it is, you know, it's something to talk to. It's definitely something of note in video games. It's a lot of folks are, you know, looking at what their next lead title on a, you know, getting that lead title, what their next big project is, or, you know, their move to a new studio or, you know, things like that. And so it's really, really amazing to hear about, the gratitude that it sounds like some of the folks from Tiny Build from around the world were, you know, given a hot, hot dose of gratitude, seeing what their colleagues have gone through and the resilience there. So what challenges lie ahead for Tiny Build, Alex? With this, you know, you've got obviously you've got a you just you just IPO'd last year. You've got a you've got a publicly run company that you've um and then you've got folks now, you've mobilized everyone out of Ukraine and Russia. You've got a war raging with you know fifty folks still in that country. What what are the challenges? Both you know because of you know what's going on in Ukraine and then just for Tiny Build as a company. Well, I think the the challenge. Um 
Uh, I always like to say this because uh, it's a different perspective. Uh, like mm-hmm. people, people say in game development, you have you know code problems, animation problems, production problems. No, no, they're they're only human problems. Like yeah. they're nothing else. If you solve the human problem, then you've solved business. Um, mm-hmm. So for us, it's about how do we make sure that our people are safe, um, happy, and uh, able to be productive. That's really the big challenge. Um, and uh, going into winter, the, all of the things we talked about are obviously quite challenging. And then uh, in general, for us, it's about um, kind of discovering this new um, intellectual property right now we have a couple of franchises right uh, from business side um, mm-hmm. and how do we make sure that the intellectual properties we're investing into and right now we have about 30 in development have a chance to well a find an audience right mm-hmm. b become profitable um, and then c um, spawn more products within that rip um, that yeah. is really what we are going through uh, on a daily basis and um because the, the big thing about this industry, if you look at um, you know the top 10 games, uh, they generate 90% of the revenue, but they're the they top franchise. 10 games. And yeah. all of them are going to be, what, 5, 10, 20 years old as franchises? Yeah. Um, yeah. With the odd exception every now and then. Um, mm-hmm. So the question is, how do you operate in that environment, right? It's, uh, it's a consolidating industry. Um, and it's a balance of uh, investing into new things, investing into things that work, and enabling people to be able to make decisions really fast. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the big challenges from the organizational um, point of view, because uh, typically when, when you have a small company, you know, like you have your production, you have your marketing, you have your you know, QA services, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. When you grow, those uh, people will grow departments. Right, because mm-hmm. you were the first marketing person, therefore you're the head of marketing. It makes sense. Yeah. When you hit about fifty or seventy people in organization, those initially critical heads of departments suddenly become bottlenecks, and that's when mm-hmm. people um, typically refer to like, oh, you know, like remember when the company was lean and mean and we could make decisions? <laughs> it's because decisions become bur- bur- burdened by bureaucracy. And that is what I really hate. I really hate redundant process. I really don't like it when when something is being done that doesn't need to be done. I hate when people uh, are in meetings that are not productive. So I'm like one of those assholes in the room that will ask... um, what what are you trying to achieve here, yeah. right? This Please go do actual work, right? I'll yeah. sit in this meeting uh, while you do actual work. So when you... When you uh, look at that, uh, the challenge is how do you make small groups of people responsible for the products that they're working on and enable them to make fast decisions based on the information that they have? And it's okay to be wrong. It's totally okay to be wrong. It's not okay to sit idle waiting for a decision to be made. Because I'm not going to make a decision based on product. I I don't know the product as well as the person working on it. It's almost more important to be able to move fast and be wrong in those smaller, you know, and then to learn to those, learn from those mistakes, have the freedom to move and experiment. Yep. Interesting. It's, it is also interesting, really, you know, and I've heard you speak about this before, Alex, is Tiny Build's focus on franchises, because it isn't mm-hmm. something that you typically see from a quote unquote, I know you're not, not a super fan of this phrase, but an indie publisher, for example, right? Um, that, there, this notion of building a franchise around independent titles um, can sometimes be be anti 
antithetical to it. Do you find it a challenge? Do you, do you have any trouble finding independent development partners that want to enter a long-term partnership with you and want to build franchises? It feels like that's the dream for mostly everyone until mm. they're done with their first game. And this is where <laughs> really when, because like, you, know, yeah. you work on something for two, three, five years, right? Yeah. You're so sick of that world, those characters, you just want to yeah. like ship it and do something else. And yep. this is the major problem and oxymoron was this whole equation. Yeah. You, you have just created something that probably made some money because it's mm-hmm. able to fund your next project. And then you move on to another IP um, that <laughs> is not proven to be successful, but you feel like since you've already had success that you will succeed in that one. That's why like there are so many um, uh, names in the industry that are uh, known for one thing, right? Even though they yeah. did like 20 things. Yeah. Now the challenge is how do you build an infrastructure where Let's say you found that one thing, you've shipped it, it becomes a big IP. How do you scale that? And uh, we went through kind of like, in hindsight, it all sounds planned, but it was kind of like done in the moment. When um, the original Hello Neighbor, our biggest franchise right now, was shipping in 2017, at that same time, we already kickstarted development on the multiplayer spinoff I mentioned Mm -hmm. and other people. So there are two more projects in development. Uh, shortly after, we um, kickstarted development on a book series, and that book series went on to sell over 4 million copies, You know, wow. more than most games sell. And just to be clear in regards to what you're saying too, those two projects that you kickstarted weren't with the initial Hello Neighbor studio, right? Like one of them was Holograph, right? That they did one of, them was that was one of those two projects, yeah? yeah? And the other one was, was the original studio, but it was um, a different direction. Right mm-hmm. for um, it was narrative driven versus uh, thriller, and th- this then uh, leads us to today, which is kind of like belated with the pandemic and whatnot. But um, about four years ago, we sat down with our creative director and thought, okay, how can we, you know, sell games? Right, mm-hmm. we have a, an IP. How can we sell more copies? So we looked mm-hmm. back at the '90s and we're like, okay, well, what did where like what are the most known characters from uh, the 90s you know and you think okay well the teenage mutant ninja turtles were quite good right or transformers or gi joe and then we realized we're talking about toys that were being sold to us by cartoons and then we're like okay uh what if we make a cartoon to sell games Mm -hmm. you have a pilot for something don't you Yes, so two yeah. years ago, um, we released um, a, we called it a test pilot where we were like, okay, let's try to do an animated series ourselves. Let's see where the bottlenecks are, how this production works. Long story short, um, we made something that we rate ourselves as a three out of 10, a really solid <laughs> three out of 10. But you that learned a got, lot, sure, right? But it got over 20 million views on our own wow. YouTube channel, right? Holy so shit. we're like, okay, there's a market. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it spiked the sales of the game as well. And we're like, okay, so what did we learn? That even a crappy TV show is able to move the needle. What if we make a really, really good TV show and actually invest into it? So yeah. that is going to be the question that we'll figure out in just a couple of weeks uh, when Hello Neighbor 2 launches alongside the actual animated series, which is going to be canon. And we'll test the theory if um, really good cartoons uh, can sell video games. And the more exciting part about this is that, to my knowledge, it's never been done when um, the creative on the linear 
part is also mm-hmm. the same creative that's on the interactive part. So you have the game and yes. the cartoon um, yeah. kind of like, I guess, morphing together in storyline. Yeah. And that's what's happening on your, the creative is the same one yeah. for both? Amazing. Yeah, and we've so what, uh, had creative, shared creative leads on that. Amazing. And so this is in two weeks, am I right? Or something like that. December 6th, you're releasing. Yes. So we're launching Hello Neighbor 2 on December 6th. And um, when, when will this podcast launch? I guess after that, right? Yeah, it'll be probably like after that. that, I imagine. Yeah. So yeah, it's probably so out now if you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going to happen is um, when the game launches, uh, people will be wondering, where the hell is the animated series? Like, where is it? And very soon in the game, they'll discover that uh, there is a TV set <laughs> with a countdown. <laughs> and then when the countdown lands, you'll be able to watch the, the TV show within the game. And that's, that's kind of like the big plot twist. Um, <laughs> it's happening within Hello Neighbor 2 and within uh, Secret Neighbor, which is that multiplayer spinoff. Yeah, so yeah. we expect that people will be flipping out because... Um, this has never been done before. Like the close thing is that Fortnite did a concert, but yeah. an anime series just randomly in a screen. Of course, it will be on YouTube a couple of days later, but we really want players to like experience it within the game because yeah, it, it feels beautiful. like a weird experience. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of, I remember playing The Darkness, you know, by Starbreeze years ago. And there was, I think I watched all, all of To Kill a Mockingbird or something in that that was playing <laughs> yeah. on the TV. Yeah, that's fascinating. Look, it, it's... It's so imp- impressive, Alex, to think about yourself and obviously the other talented folk you have there at Tiny Build. You know, I've just being in the indie scene myself, I've seen you go from just like, you know, an orange hat or two at a conference through to, you know, and finding a lanyard in my pocket, you know, afterwards through to, you know, obviously you're, you're huge, huge booths. I love the carnival this year at PAX, by the way. Thank you. Um, fantastic idea. Um, at PAX West, everyone this year, Tiny Build um, built a carnival uh, with uh, full with like amusement, um, not rides, what are they called? Um, games, parlor yeah, like, games uh, and things like mm-hmm. this. Yeah, a sideshow alley. It was absolutely, mm-hmm. it was great. It was in the vibe there was awesome. Also tackling some bigger games, I you know, I've for the first time there I saw as well, and it seems like what you've been, tackling before it's just so great to see you going from strength to strength such such a successful ipo last year as well and then to think that while all of this is happening that you're dealing with you know with the largest war in europe in 70 years or something like that it's it's quite it's quite remarkable what you and your team um, are achieving and you know the what you're doing for your team over there and your employees so My hat goes off to you, Alex. Thank you so much for coming here today, sharing your story. Um, I wish only the best for you and your team. And, you know, hopefully, as we all hope, um, this this conflict, you know, finds its way to a peaceful resolution and all of your your wonderful employees find themselves back at home. Well, you know, uh, looking forward to uh, DICE in Ukrainian Crimea at some point. Yeah, right. Dice Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, and hey, yeah, by the time this has come out, congrats on Halle Navy 2. I'm sure it'll probably be out by the time this podcast goes. If not, um, actually, give us a plug. What's it? It's available on almost every platform, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to come out on uh, consoles and uh, Steam and on our own website and wherever else you can find it. 
Um, it, it's the highly, highly anticipated sequel to the original Hall Neighbor, five years in development, uh, done with, uh, you know, with love from people all over the world, <laughs> especially Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone, it's a fantastic way to obviously support the team members that you heard about today on the podcast. So go out and grab a copy. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. Registration for the 2023 DICE Summit is now open. The premier video game networking conference returns to Las Vegas from Tuesday, February 21st through Thursday, February 23rd at Resorts World and will explore the idea of the long game. For more information and to register, visit dicesummit.org.